The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think, feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger, or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Hey guys, welcome back to the Nicholas Gregoratis Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Gregoratis. In today's episode, the guest, Mr. Will Sampson, and I have a really interesting conversation that uh, to me was important because, again, it it revolves around overcoming and, and coming back from failure. It's been a theme with quite a few of the guests as of late, and it's something that's very close to my heart because... God knows I've failed so many times in my life. And when I used to fail, it used to really hurt me. And I used to be very harsh on myself. But what I'm starting to realize is that failure is just the cost of entry. If you want to live an amazing life, you literally, that's, that's the ticket you have to buy. And when you look at it in in a different perspective and realize that Everyone who does anything cool in the world, anyone who builds anything cool or creates anything cool has failed at some point, then you realize that it's actually just a marker along the road to fulfillment and success. You know, when you hit a failure, yeah, I'm going in the right direction because my destination, which is my objective or my goal or whatever success I'm trying to achieve en route is failure. And this is closely tied to the other thing, which I'm, I'm really totally committed to. That's the best way for me to describe it. I'm totally committed to fully loving and accepting myself, regardless of my mistakes or failures, or even regardless of my successes and victories. You know, either way, I've just made this decision that I'm going to completely love and accept myself. If this kind of thing resonates with you, if you feel that you there's room for you to love yourself more and, and for you to have a better relationship with failure. Not only is this episode going to be great for you, but working with me will be great for you. If you're the right type of person and, and you and I gel and we work together, I will change your life. I will help you become more successful. I will help you become happier, healthier, and just have more fun on your human experience. If you want to find out more about that and what I do, including getting a free copy of my book, head on over to coachnickg.com and you can find out more information there. Remember it's Nick without a K. So it's coachnicg.com. Okay, guys, let's dive into the episode with Mr. Will Sampson. Enjoy. Hey guys, please welcome Mr. Will Sampson. He is a, a very unique and interesting gentleman. His bio, I'm going to read it, read it to you. I, I tried to memorize it. It was just too long. There's too much about this guy. He is on a moonshot mission to disrupt the self-help industry and possibly alter the human operating system. He's a transformational mindset and change coach who guides tech companies, C-suite executives, and entrepreneurs to amazing levels of growth. He's also the founder of Life Teams, a company producing an AI-based app that would works like a dating service for people who want to grow their lives. And he's currently writing a book called You Can't Succeed Alone, which is based on his journey of rebooting his life. Thanks for coming on the show, Will. Excellent. Thank you for having me. It's yeah. great to be here. 
let's let's start with that this idea of, or or this action that you took of rebooting your life because i think most people who get to make it you know into their late 30s early 40s have undergone some kind of thing that's taken them to the place where they had to to endure or or have a reboot can you tell us how that happened for you you bet i'd be glad to yeah and probably I'll just talk about these transformative moments as liminal processes when we have to go through like a 13-year-old boy would be sent out into the woods to make life on their own to come back and figure out how to grow into adulthood. For many of us, though, those processes happen at different times. For me, it happened in my late 40s and early 50s, where it, for me, it was a process of coming into uh, recovery from substance abuse. So I had a severe substance abuse disorder and kind of burned everything down around me. So I was I was a successful executive at a large uh, defense contractor. I had a happy marriage. There was no reason why things should have been hard other than that I was telling myself some negative stories. I had some unresolved trauma. I mean, there was a lot of issues driving it. And what happened was I got myself into a place where there wasn't a whole lot of moving forward with the resources that I had. And I was fortunate in that I found a group of people who were willing to invest love and belief in me until I could begin to generate that for myself. And now I call that, I actually call that concept emotional capitalism. You know, if you think about a venture capitalist, they will invest financial capital in an individual they think that they think is going to create some value in the market that's going to increase in value and give them 10x, 20x return. But emotional capital is really that idea of investing love and belief in others until they can find it in themselves. And that's precisely what I found in in the process of recovery. And what I began to understand was that those resources were within me. I just couldn't really get to them. That, That what I needed was that emotional capitalism. What I needed was that emotional investment in me to become a self-author, to be to begin to fully author my own life. It's not as if I would I would ever say that our job is to have other people tell us how we should live, or I never want to create a sense of dependency on other people. But the reality is that I've I've learned how to be fully myself by allowing others to invest that love and belief in me. And now I get to turn around and do that for others. So I get to coach C-suite executives, I get to coach entrepreneurs. I've started one company. I'm in the process of starting my second company and I'm writing a book about that process because I think it's so easy, especially for men, we get caught up in this narrative of what we should be, this story of what we think we're supposed to be. And it's not until we can really shake that loose and begin to say, okay, who am I? What's my purpose? What am I supposed to be that we can begin to live into our authentic self? Okay. So I'm going to ask you some hard questions because I'm sensing that you, you're a far more interesting gentleman than I, than I actually originally gave you credit for. And I, and I did give you quite a lot of credit in the beginning. So this is, this is very exciting for me. You know, one of the things that I, I love about America and living here is it's two things, really. The first is they will always, uh, Americans have this kind of can-do attitude, right? They'll always hear you out if you've got an idea or a, a vision they'll always listen. They might not agree with it, but they're always open-minded to it. It's not the same in Europe and in most other places I've been in the world, right? And another thing America loves is they love the comeback story. It's just, it's just a certain thing about 
the, the nature. I don't know why America is like that, but they just love to hear about, you know, people going through these traumatic events and then coming back to the top. I've heard it's, there's another uh, phenomenon around this, which is that they say when you're building a business, especially a business similar to the one that you've created, is that your mess becomes your message, right? Which I find quite interesting. And so I want to I want to dive a little bit more into when you burned it all down, right? So th- there's two elements. First, I, w- I want to know a little bit more about what it was before you burned it down and how you burned it down. And then also you mentioned it was related to childhood trauma. And if you don't mind sharing with that, that with us, uh, a lot of the work I do as well is dealing with my own trauma and bullshit, but also helping my clients deal with theirs. So I'd, I'd love to hear about those two things. You bet. So the burning it down was really not quite literally lighting fire to things, but I was given a great deal of resources. I mean, I'm a I'm a white male in America. I, I had I'm a well-educated, I have a PhD, I have an earned, an actual earned PhD. So I'm a pretty smart guy. But I I refused to believe what was true about myself. And largely that was because I I had been fed a lot of false narratives. Some of that was years of baggage from maybe some bad, some religion gone bad. Some of that was um, just, you know, family systems issues and and sort of growing up as the youngest and the only male in a, in a large family of six. But to burn it down meant literally that I, I just kept putting everything off. I, I had a sense of what my purpose was. I've had a statement which defines my purpose for almost two decades now. So I had a sense of what my purpose was, which is that I I teach people how to help others. I realized early on that I'm okay at helping, but I'm much better at teaching other people how to build systems that help and grow others. So I have a real clear sense of what my purpose was, but I couldn't get out of my own way. And because of some decisions I made, I was looking for ways to block that. And you know, some people struggle with weight. Some people struggle with procrastination. I just didn't want to feel the feelings I was feeling. I didn't want to have the thoughts I was having. And so one of the ways to block that out was to block it out with alcohol. And that got to the point where I, you know, got into some legal trouble, not significant legal trouble, but trouble that made me no longer a great candidate to work in the defense industry in a security clear position in the defense industry. And so a lot of the things that I had believed were going to be true about in my life were fading away, just slipping away. And some of those things were like, I'm going to be happily married forever. I'm going to become a president of the defense contractor. I mean, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to be. So so I've, I've been working in this field of change management for uh, that I work in the, in the corporate world for almost two decades. And um, I imagined I was going to be published by Harvard Business Review. I imagined that I was going to be on the front of uh, Entrepreneur Magazine and, and a lot of these magazines, because I I knew that I had something that mattered to the marketplace because I had seen some examples of it, but I couldn't quite get to it because I kept getting in my own way. And what that meant was I suddenly found myself in financial trouble, kind of got behind in, in my finances. Anything that was had represented career progress got, got kind of diminished and burned down. And so there I was in my early 50s having to figure out, okay, well, what my, what's my life supposed to be about now? What's, what does my life look like now with this new reality? 
And what I found was that the ability to serve others made a huge difference. So really finding a way to serve others. And, and I was fortunate in that I got sober during COVID. Um, and I know a lot of people didn't say that. A lot of a lot of people had just the opposite, where they got stuck at home and then they, you know, they drank themselves into their closet. For me, it was uh, actually it was an opportunity to be a service. I had done a lot of work. I had done some work managing technical teams using Zoom for several years before the before the pandemic hit, and so I had the opportunity to right away be of service and begin to help people just find hope and healing through Zoom meetings. Um, and so. So that was really the pro- began the process of rebuilding. And what I needed to rebuild from is the answer to your second question, which is trauma, some of those traumas that I experienced. You know, I, I grew up in a very religious family, but I sometimes wondered, I sometimes felt like I had an older brother, his name was Jesus, and my parents kind of liked him a little more than they did me. <laughs> that's, that's great. That, that, that is, you've just put words to something that, yeah, that wow, that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I love that. Yeah, no worries. And so, being the youngest of six, being uh, the child of much older parents, and then also struggling with learning disabilities, I had significant learning disabilities growing up. Not just ADHD, but I had some visual processing disorders, things like dyslexia. And so, struggling with those things and not really having an, the kind of family system that was able to sort of get around me and say, "Let's get through this together." I was, I was really kind of on my own. And those stories get embedded deeply in you. Um, And I know you work with, you do a lot of coaching with, particularly with men. And because we live in a culture or we live with a cultural narrative that said, that says we shouldn't be vulnerable. We shouldn't, um, you know, we we shouldn't be self-honest, especially in a group. We never show weakness, never show weakness. So I was trying to figure out how to deal with these stories I was telling myself. And truth of the matter is, Nick, I was saying things to myself, I would never say to another human. Like I was talking shit. If I can use that word, I was talking shit to myself in ways that I would never talk to another human, but it made sense for me largely because of certain religious upbringings, family systems, things like that. And so it really wasn't until I was able to spend a good bit of time being of service to others that, and I still remember, I can tell you exactly at least the month it was, maybe not the exact date, which was that it was February of 2020, where I was kind of, I was kind of beating myself up one day. Oh, you don't, you know, I was telling myself, you don't ever do anything consistently. And then I realized I'd been helping to run this recovery program for almost a year. And I said, well, what else could I do? So I added the gym to that. And then I added intermittent fasting to that. And then I, you know, and so what, what's, what started out of service because I had a particular need. I had to solve a problem in my life, which was to find recovery. So I had a particular need in my life. And what started out of that need was the process of habit stacking to the point now where I've got a really consistent daily habit stack that helps me find my helps me find my way in the world. It helps me keep connected to my purpose. It helps me find some of those non-ordinary states of consciousness. I know you talked about an ayahuasca journey. For me, uh, flow state, trances, meditations, these are things that are really important to me because they keep me grounded and they keep me connected to the reason why I'm here in the world. And as I begin to get rid of some of that old baggage and some of those old stories, I find other people coming to me and saying, 
yeah, we have some of those same stories. Tell me how you did it. That's a key element of my coaching methodology. Yeah, that's that's excellent. I, you know, when you you said that you were just shit talking yourself, I'm reminded of uh, a very powerful insight a good friend of mine gave me. He said, if you externalize that inner voice, right, into a person, if you collated all of its judgments of you into the personality of a person and externalize them, would you want to spend time with that person? And yeah, I mean, for me, the answer was fuck no, I don't want to be anywhere near someone that talks to me like that, right? And that was one of the first things that got me to start changing my negative self-talk. This idea of emotional capitalism also strikes a chord with me, Will, because uh, funny enough, I, I coined the term uh, or the phrase emotional bank account uh, several years ago, just when I was thinking of a specific relationship that I'd had where I'd kept depositing in what I call the emotional bank account, right? So I, I kept doing things for the other person, just knowing, okay, this person is on my team. We're, we're in this particular endeavor together. And then when it came time for me to make a withdrawal, that account was closed or it was empty. And uh, how do you reconcile that with, with the work you do? The fact that like sometimes you're going to put all this effort into someone all this emotional capital into them and they're just going to stiff you in the end. I mean, it's just the, the fact some people are garbage, right? They're just not going to step up to the plate. I reconcile it by recognizing that there are different levels of investment. So because of the work I do, I work with people early in recovery who are trying to find a way to live without relying on these things, whether it's food or, or alcohol or, or cocaine or whatever. And you know what? Some of them don't make it and it hurts like hell. And I let them go because that's, their choice. So I never hope for the people I work with early in recovery, I never hope that it's a reciprocal process because it's just not going to be, it's going to be uneven. And that's part of my work of service. Now, by contrast, I have built around me what I call my life team. These are the people that sort of help me in ways that are not my strengths. And that is reciprocal. And I'm perfectly willing to take somebody off the bank account, to use your analogy, if they're not depositing as well. So I, I run three masterminds right now with people from around the globe. And we get together, one of them gets together once a month and the other two get together every week. And we, I have asked people to leave those masterminds because um, they, they were taking more than, they were only taking, they weren't interested in giving. And so, so I do think there's a, it, it has certain levels kind of in the middle is probably most of the work that I do in my in my coaching process which is to really reignite through emotional capitalism something in people's spirits to see if they can help begin to tend the flame themselves i would never ever want to be in the position of being responsible for somebody else's emotional state mm -hmm. that's not what we're doing but i think it is true that there's people like myself or like i was who just aren't capable of getting the getting out of their own way. They're not capable of clearing the shit out of the way so they can get to the real issues. And I do think that in, that emotional investment can can help provide the ability to do that and the capacity to do that. You know, I mentioned legal trouble. Part of my legal trouble was I had to go to jail for five weeks. I don't wear that on my sleeve, but I also done a TEDx talk about it, so it's not like I'm <laughs> I'm not hiding from it. Sure, sure, but 
what happened that day was that I had 18 people who were there with me to support me. And so when I went into that liminal process, which is exactly what it was, I spent five, five weeks in county jail. It wasn't, you know, it's not Oz or, or Sing Sing. <laughs> but I, spent, you know, I spent five weeks with nothing but a pen and paper sitting around. It's like waiting at the DMV with shitty food. And because I carried that investment of those individuals in with me, it was a much more successful time than it would have been if I was just sitting there feeling sorry for myself and living in my own stories. I had these other people who said, we got your back. Even if we can't be physically with you, we've got your back. And that made a huge, huge difference. In fact, it became some of the insights that are in the book. Okay. What What was your lowest point? Well, like, uh, I remember mine in my life. I won't go into it here. And I've spoken to other people who speak about that, like, I have hit rock bottom. It cannot get any worse than this. And it's usually accompanied accompanied by the the pivot, right? That's when things start to get better because you realize, shit, I've got to make a change. What was that for you specifically? You bet. So I was out with friends in Santa Cruz and I had decided even after, even after I had had a DUI and some other trouble, I had decided that it would be a good idea to drink. And it wasn't. And, and it ended up being a real shit show to the point where... They had to like work with the airline to get me home safely. These are stories that you hear all the time in the rooms of recovery, but we don't often talk about outside of those rooms because for whatever reason, we we carry a lot of social stigma around the self-honesty that it takes to talk about recovery, whatever it is you're recovering from. And so, yeah, that was probably my lowest point was to have just really kind of diminished the beauty of these friendships and the power of these friendships by, by cheapening them. And that was the point when I said, this has got to change. We got to get through. Yeah, no, good for you. It's so interesting to me that uh, again, I'm going to, I'm going to demonstrate my own limiting beliefs and, and how narrow my perspectives are, but I find it so challenging to reconcile someone as highly educated as a PhD doing something no offense so stupid right as as getting a dui right it just it blows my mind but then i realized that it's not a question of intelligence it's it's the trauma really drives you the trauma dictates what you're going to be doing right and until you deal with that you can have all the money or all the external things or all the degrees or but it's not strong enough to overcome that energy that's trapped within your body Right. And it's also not strong enough to overcome the neurochemistry that's happening in your body. What, here's what we were learning more recently. So when you think about getting into a flow state, the way you can enter, the way you enter a flow state is you really have to be able to turn off your prefrontal cortex. That's, that's that judging part that says, no, this can't be real. This can't be a thing we're doing. And in order to really enter a flow state, you have to turn off the prefrontal cortex. Well, where is trauma stored? It's stored in the prefrontal cortex. And so these higher states of consciousness that we hope to, it's why, it's why things like ayahuasca journeys uh, have more success because they, they get chemically into places that our own thoughts have a, have a tough time getting to. Mm. Well, I've never heard that. I've never heard that described that way. That's, that's very well said. Yeah. yeah. And so that's why you, you see people with a PhD who get a, DH, D, a DUI or you get, you see people with uh, advanced, you know, high levels of intelligence who commit really stupid crimes even like, why does that happen? Well, it's because the processing centers of the brain 
are struggling chemically to deal with the trauma, the PTSD, the negative stories, all these things. These, these continue to affect us biochemically. And that's why emotional capitalism, one of the things that it does, and I'm, I'm still kind of working on the research around it, but one of the things that it does is it really rewires that part of our storytelling, of our internal storytelling that allows us to then do that neurochemical work of entering these higher states of consciousness. And, and just to be clear, uh, help, help me define it. Emotional capitalism is the act of investing in someone else emotionally when they are in need of help. Investing love and belief in others until they can create it for themselves. So besides what, what you went through, I mean, you know, you, you had those, I think you said five or 10 friends who were there with you when you went to jail and yeah. they, they will invest this emotional capitalism in you and it, it helped you get through that time and, and, and pivot. Give me an example of either people that you've worked with that have had that same thing, how it's worked for them or yeah, more examples of it in, in action would be appreciated. Yeah, you bet. I'll give you I'll give you two specific examples from from my coaching practice. Mm-hmm. So one was a, a a guy in his 30s who had a sense that he could be really great in the tech industry. He wanted to be a CTO in his company, but he couldn't figure out how to get beyond. He was he was kind of stuck in his career. And so by um, working with him, I was able to really kind of help him unpack some of those stories, some of those narratives, and then be able to say what would it look like if, you know, it's that kind of appreciative inquiry question. What would it look like if you really thought you were capable of designing global strategy for this company you work for? What would it look like if you really believe you could hold your own in, in a meeting with guys 20 years older than you? What would that look like? And that was the process of kind of investing that love and belief in that individual who is now well on his way to becoming one the youngest CTO of that company if he's able to succeed at it. Another was an individual that I worked with. She's the CEO of a, of a tech company here in the Washington, D.C. area. And the currency in D.C. is, is government contracts. She wanted, a, she wanted a government contract. And so we were able to kind of, I was able to kind of work with her and say, what would it look like if you began to trust your employees? Ooh, I'm not sure I can really, you know. And it, I mean, yes, on paper, it sounded great, but then there was a, all these questions behind it. And what I realized was that she didn't actually believe she was confident enough or good enough to allow her employees to do what they were good at. And so by investing love and belief in her, we were able to help her and she ended up landing a really nice government contract, which was the, the goal that we were working on together in the coaching practice. Okay. I'm, I'm starting to get it now. The way I interpret it and, and the way I use that is uh, it's, it maybe doesn't overlap exactly, but just when I think of capitalism, you use the word investment, like earlier in the conversation, I just go by the the idea, it's one of the core guiding principles of my life that I just put good stuff out there and good stuff comes back. Right. So it's, I, I think there is some similarities. I mean, if you just, if you're just good to someone, whether it's a client or a friend or I don't know, a homeless guy on the street, I mean, somehow it's going to come back to you. Right. And uh, are we kind of on the same page? We are with one important distinction. And I want to go back to, cause you, you teed up a question a little bit earlier about What's unique about the American context? And there is, this is like, (laughs) the United States is like no other world of ideas in the world. And I get Mm -hmm. that. But we live with a narrative that 
we are meant to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And I, I tell people that that's actually a joke that's been told on all of us. In fact, it was offered as a joke. When the phrase was first offered, it was uh, part of an editorial in 1834. It was a guy who believed that he had invented a perpetual motion machine. And the editorial was was about this guy saying, his name was Nimrod Murphy of all names, but Nimrod Murphy must believe that he can pull himself up by his own bootstraps. Because at the time, it was so crazy to imagine that somebody would succeed alone, that they would succeed without the help of a whole community of people. And so where I think it becomes important, particularly in the American context, it's funny because I was with, um, I was in the Middle East, I was in Jordan uh, two months ago with friends. And I explained these concepts, I explained these concepts to friends from other parts of the world and they maybe get it a little uh, more clearly where there's a little more of a communitarian sense. What I think is important to underscore is this idea that really no one succeeds alone. And so by investing this love and belief in other people, we enable them Sometimes we're investing nothing more than the emotions. We're investing nothing more than the love and the belief, but it enables people to be fully themselves. And the reality is that this happens all the time in entrepreneurship. We just don't talk about it because it doesn't match our narrative. So here's here's the best example of that. In the 70s, there was a young record store owner in East London who um, had gotten himself into a jam. He was, because he was not very good with money, because he wasn't paying attention to you know, the financial end of his business. His little record store in East London was about, to go out of, was about to go out of business. And his mom mortgaged her home and didn't just mortgage her home, but she gave him that kind of speech that only a mom can give. Like, I believe in you, you've got this. And he did go on to succeed. That's actually Richard Branson. And so the problem is, when we tell these stories of entrepreneurs, we often hear like this entrepreneur who made it all on their own. I remember there was a guy, I was listening to a podcast. This was a couple months ago. And he was like, yeah, I had to make it on my own. And the interviewer said, well, why is that? He said, well, my mom was never around. She was off working two jobs. And my first thought was, oh, wow, that's awesome. Your mom worked two jobs so you could be fed and have clothes for school. The, the reality is that we live in this network of interdependence. It just, the way we think about it, it, it doesn't always match our narrative to believe that we succeed together. The narrative tends to be, I got this, man. I got it all on my own. And that's actually not reality. And And I mean, circling back around to the early part of this conversation it's it's a very core part of the um, the american narrative specifically right which is this it's a, such an individualistic society and this idea of the guy succeeding on his own is venerated right it's it's that's looked up to it's like the first thing that comes to mind is is tom brady right Tom Brady, the best quarterback. I mean, I don't even follow football, but I know for a fact that Tom Brady doesn't win those games. You know, this whole machine behind him wins those games and he's just the guy who throws the ball in the end of respect. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing thing he does, but we as a society then put him on this pedestal. It's like, he did it. He's the guy. He's the guy, right? And you're absolutely right. In my own life, especially when I was at my rock bottom moment, it, it was my friends. It was my friends who saved me. I've said this probably 300 times this year in different conversations. And that is 
you know who your friends are when the chips are down, right? And if you don't have anyone where the chips are down, you're out the game. It's done, right? Like it doesn't matter how strong you are, like being on your own without any resources or love or support, you're going to break, right? Unless you are a total aberration, psychopath, sociopath, which uh, I don't know, like then you've got other problems. So <laughs> let me ask you a slightly out there question, Will. Uh, if you could ask your future self, not your past self, your future self, one question, what would that be? So it's interesting because I, I have asked this. So <laughs> let's, let me explain. So one of the groups that I participate in is a group called Mind Valley. It's a, or one of the communities I commit, participate in is a community called Mind Valley. And several months ago, there was a, a session where they were looking at quantum memories and quantum jumping. Like, would it be possible to imagine a version of yourself that existed in a different dimension? I've actually done the, the the quantum jumping program. It was very interesting. I was thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know. Oh, right on. About. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so I have five tattoos on my body. There's only one that I didn't plan ahead of time. It's my only drunk tattoo. So every other tattoo I has has a perfect story behind it. I have a tattoo. The story is I got drunk, watched a John Wick movie, took a cab to the tattoo parlor, and got a tattoo. <laughs> nice. And I always felt like an idiot. Like I I didn't even want to show it. Because I always felt like an idiot. Because it's 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 the John Wick tattoo about courage and bravery. That's pretty cool. Fortune favors the brave, right? Yeah. But I, but I always felt but I always felt kind of dumb about it because especially when the Matt Damon crypto commercial came out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But when I was in this quantum experiment, and maybe it's a thought experiment, maybe there really is a different version of myself that exists. I don't know. But I got a chance to meet that other version of myself. Wasn't even thinking at all about the tattoo. And I asked him, I said, what should I know? And he said, that tattoo? He said, I put that on you so you see it every morning because I want you to know that it's going to take bravery and courage to go where you're going. And that completely changed this tattoo and even kind of the way I think about the work that I do. So... If my future self could ask me a question, it would be, did you use all the bravery you could have? Did you have all the courage you could have summoned? Did you truly tap into your heart or did you get to the, you know, to the goal line and sit down? Did you, did, but, you know, did you, did you go full tilt or did you whistle out? Superb. I love it. Who do you trust most in your life, Will? I'm fortunate to have a life partner that I can answer that question to. Um, but I would also say that that I there are people in the world of recovery that I trust deeply because, because we share things that often don't get talked about in public. Share some of your deepest, darkest memories in the rooms of recovery. And so those are people I trust. But I will say that that's one of the things that having others practiced emotional capitalism in me, one of the things, one of the outgrowths of that has been that I have a much greater level of trust for people in general. I'm not a wild-eyed optimist at all. I work with corporate clients who just do shitty, terrible things, and, I, and I'm very aware of that. But I will say that my capacity to trust has increased over the years because I trust myself more. The problem was for years, I, I didn't believe me. I would tell myself, well, I'm going to do this. And then I didn't do it. And so I thought I was full of shit, if that makes sense. 
So learning how to trust myself more has given me the capacity to trust others with good wisdom, you know, with, with the bounds of wisdom. I don't just trust people randomly. People still need to earn a certain amount of trust. But I tend to trust people. I tend to want to trust people more now because of the process I've been through. Yeah. I'm reminded of one of the key principles I live my life by. And in fact, it's, it's one of the, the 20 principles I describe in my own book, which is that the world is, the world is a mirror and that it is constantly reflecting who you are back at you. And so the fact that you've learned to trust yourself more implies that, you know, you're not only are you trusting others more, you're receiving more trust from others as well. So it's so, so good to hear that. Well, I have, I think this will be, be the last question and it's coming back to this, you know, I, I really, I'm such a, a sucker for the hero's journey, right? Like, and, and, and the turnaround and, and finding out what the key the key thoughts are that that penetrate into someone's psyche and allow them to make changes, right? And that's what a good coach does is, I don't even talk about it in a coaching context. I'm specifically, the example I think about is my mother. My mother is very, very religious, uh, very stubborn, very closed-minded. And you know, in spite of all of those things, she's a lovely human being. I love her very much. But she's at the stage in life where I, I think she's feeling the weight of all all her previous choices and her close-mindedness, and she knows that she needs to change, right? So whenever I have a conversation with my mother, what I'm thinking is, what is the one little language code that I can use to slip into her mind? What's the one idea or thought or question that I can get her to change, right? And I want to know specifically what was that for you when you're at that rock bottom place, like, and and all these people were investing in you, giving you emotional capital. Like, what was the thought that you know got you to say no more drinking? I'm I'm turning this fucking ship around. What was that for you? Yeah, for me, it was the belief of others and the story of others that I believed in. And so this is where the hero's journey, look, I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. I, I have, I've read Power of Myth. I love that book. I love that concept. But what worked for me was seeing other people who had succeeded in the journey that I came to believe I could succeed in as well. So that thought could be, if they can do it, I can do it. Basically, that was the, okay. If they can do it, I can do it. And asking the question the opposite way, which is what will tomorrow be like if I keep doing what I'm doing? If you want more of what you got, then keep doing what you're doing. If you want something different, you have to do something differently as well. And that's really, that was really those two thoughts sort of taken together. I've, I've seen other people who've been able to do this, to, to walk this journey. Therefore, I believe I can, and they believe I can as well. And I can look back now at the last decade of my life and realize that this is not a path I want to be on anymore. That idea of if they, if they can do it, I can do it. I'm reminded I had a, a business partner many years ago and uh, we were trying to accomplish a, a specific thing with our business. And he just said, we can't do that. And I was like, but those guys did it. I was like, those guys right there did it. I like, I can, I can show you how they did it. Right. Like what's the difference between them and us? We have arms and legs and ears and eyes. And like, we're humans, they're humans. We're as intelligent as they are. Why can't we do it? And he ascribed it to luck. He said, no, they're just lucky. And yeah, there, there may have been some truth to that, but I, I refuse to accept that. 
Well, it, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you. I am definitely going to be reading You Can't Succeed Alone. And uh, if those people watching or listening to this want to find out more about you, where's the best place for them to go? Best place for them to go is willsampson.com. Um, and they can sign up for the, the weekly newsletter. That's going to have chapter excerpts from the book. It's going to have other, wherever I'm speaking, there'll be um, uh, snippets from my speaking engagements and other thoughts, particularly from the research that I'm developing around humans change. Because I think there's some fascinating research that we're just beginning to discover. So yeah, willsampson.com is the best place to find me. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. We'll appreciate you. All right, Nick. Thank you. What blew my mind about that particular conversation is the realization that, you know, anyone can go off the rails. Doesn't matter what you've done before. Doesn't matter how established or stable your life is, or whether you've ticked all of society's boxes and have a good career and a family life. And, you know, you've played by all the rules. All it takes is, I don't know, some unprocessed trauma or two little neurons in your brain to wire together or, you know, an an incident. And you can very quickly find your identity, everything you thought you were, you can find that taken from you. And uh, it's tough. That's when you find out what you're really made of. And it was cool to hear Will open up and really share with us what he went through and more importantly, how he came back from it. I hope you guys are enjoying the show and I'll be back in another week with another episode. Until next time, peace out. Peace out.